Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another Photog Adventures podcast. I'm Aaron King, and you're listening to the photography podcast dedicated to getting you out there on an adventure of your own. I know that all of you have full-time jobs, full-time families, but you bought that camera for a reason. So pack your gear, grab your camera, get out there, get a flat tire. It's time for a Photog Adventure of your own. Hello. <laughs> Welcome <laughs> to the Photog. Love that girl. That's Josie, my daughter. She is three years old, turning four in May. And for those of you longtime listeners, she's the daughter who at the day of her birth, I captured my first shot of the abandoned train trestle. Yes, yes, yes. I know, some of you are thinking right now, well, that's a bad father. The day that she was born, he was out doing Milky Way? (laughs) Okay, put it in perspective. If you've heard the story before, I'll make it a lot faster than you expect. My wife was sleeping on drugs. The baby was with the nurses. There was nothing there at the hospital for me except for sleeping on the couch, kind of in solidarity. And all I wanted to do was go for a few hours out to the train trestle, which was only an hour and a half away, why not? And my wife agreed. And so, yeah, I did get a chance to go out on Josie's day of birth and do a Milky Way shot. So, hey guys, welcome into the Photog Adventures podcast. Today, I am going to share with you a treat that comes from something that most of you have only a little bit of an idea about. It's the Milky Way Photographers Guild. It is active, it is live, it is available for you to join If you go to any of my websites, I am not promoting it right now. I haven't really put the links up there, shame on me, but there is a link down below for you to find it. You can go to milkywayphotographersguild.com. Tomorrow is our roundtable, our first ever roundtable where we're live, and it's a live stream with Briny Richards and Eric Benedetti. They will be right here in studio joining me tomorrow night. So if you're listening to this podcast right now on Thursday evening, you will know that you have until 7 p.m. Mountain Time to join the Guild and find the link for our live stream of the Eric Benedetti, Briny Richards, Milky Way Roundtable. The actual live stream will begin at 7.30 p.m. Mountain Time once they're able to fight through the traffic and get down here from Salt Lake. And those of you who don't know what else there's benefits of with the Milky Way Photographers Guild is you get two podcasts a month, plus the Milky Way Roundtable, plus all of my tip sheets for free, as well as access to my Milky Way Wednesday presentations twice a month. So every Wednesday, there's a Milky every other Wednesday, there's a Milky Way Wednesday. And due to it being for the Guild exclusively now, I can go back to the classroom format where I interact with you. You get a chance to talk to me and we get a chance to learn together. And so basically think of the Milky Way Photographers Guild as your chance to learn and train up on Milky Way photography and have me at your Available, you know, I'm available to you through the guild. It's a community. It's an f- online community similar to Facebook groups that I love it. There's no ads. There's no other functionality that's going to distract you like connecting with friends or this person's found you or when I announce something, 100% of you will hear about it. No one will miss the events that come up once a, once a week. So come check it out. Go to MilkyWayPhotographersGuild.com and enjoy this episode talking about... 
Oh, and I should mention, this is one of and the first exclusive episode of the Milky Way Photographers Guild Astrophotog podcast. This was the first one that went out, and it's preparing you for the 10 things you must do before you get out for Milky Way. I will talk about a tip sheet that came along with this you will not have access to that. I need to keep something exclusive for the Milky Way Photographers Guild. So if you want to see that, come join me and try it out. There's a three-day trial where you can come check it out and see everything and then decide to stick with it or not. So enjoy this episode. Milky Way is coming. Milky Way is back. Milky Way is here. It's here. I have so many Milky Way plans just on the calendar right now as I'm looking at it. Okay, okay, shh, shh. Here you go. Enjoy. Get ready for Milky Way. Today, the lesson is all about the 10 things you must do before you go out and shoot Milky Way photography. So if you're thinking about going right now, this week, really soon in 2020, what are the things that you must check off your list and say, I know this, I know this, I know this. If you know these 10 things, you will get an mil- a properly exposed Milky Way shot. Will you get a great image? Will you have great composition? Will you end up with great conditions? No, none of this is promising any of that, but it is the base of everything. It is something you will have to do every time. Eventually, some of the node, the gear elements of these 10 will actually be second nature, and you've already checked them off the list, and you're bringing the same gear every time, and so you don't have to really think about it. Just know that you have it with you. But beyond that, this is going to be your Milky Way Bible, your 10 things you must know and do. And if you don't know any of these things, if you don't know even one of them, you're going to be missing out somewhere or you're going to have a challenge in something. Like, for instance, number 10, that is going to be a big one if you don't do it already. And if you do go without it, you'll be okay. But what a bummer it would be to have without it. So, Let's get going. For those of you who want to forge ahead to different sections of this and don't want to hear the lesson a part of every single point of the 10, you can go check out my download. Go to the guild and go to the article about the podcast and you'll see the download right there. You can click on the link and download the PDF that has the cheat sheet or the tip sheet, which includes all 10 plus the bonus so that you can just look at that and say, okay, cool. I got that. I got that. I got, oh, this one. I wonder what he said about this one. I'm going to go to the podcast and fast forward through to that point. In the notes, I'll do my best to say the minute that every single one of these points came through. So you can fast forward to that minute and say, I want to hear point number eight and find out what that that one was. And I want to hear number seven. Let's go back to seven. What minute was that? So you can check out that in the notes on the article in the Milky Way Photographers Guild. So go to the guild and check out the featured article about episode one. Three of these items right in the beginning are going to be stuffed entirely without your camera. Nothing to do with your camera, your tripod, nothing. You could have nothing else with you and focus on these three things and know them and get to know them. Say you have a camera coming, these are the things that you will do. And the very first one is quite obvious. Know the moon and the Milky Way. Know the moon and the Milky Way. Why? Why must you know the moon and the Milky Way? Well, obvious thing is that the moon, no matter how big it is, I've heard some people say that up to 40% illuminated, it can be okay. But honestly, the change in color is apparent with any sliver of moon. And I just threw my pencil. It doesn't matter if that sliver is just a thumbnail or if it is an actual gigantic moon. You're going to have a change of color in the sky. And depending on where it is in the sky, it could even be so much light that it's washing out the detail in parts of the Milky Way. 
Does that translate into something that's not going to work? No, there's situations at Astro Twilight you might even enjoy a Milky Way and don't care that it's much more blue than typically at full darkness. But that's okay. Here's the thing. If you want to have your best success and get a Milky Way at the time of full darkness, you need to know where the moon is going to be in relationship with the Milky Way. And so... I can give you a whole lesson entirely on each of these things. But if you haven't already found them on my YouTube channel, or if you haven't already seen them in the Milky Way course, then know that all year long in the Northern Hemisphere, we are going to have a Milky Way that goes like this. About end of January into February, the Milky Way starts showing up. But when does it show up? It shows up at the end of the night. And what happens is it's barely rising. And so from February through March, you have this barely rising Milky Way towards the end of the night leading into the morning. Once April hits, you start having a panorama possibility really early in the evening. And so around midnight, you're out. Around May, April, you're out at midnight all the way through to Astro Twilight. The Milky Way is rising and it goes until it gets too bright. And so you're going to have five to six hours at that time. And then when you're looking at the summer months, June, July, August, that Milky Way is going to be up all night long. It's going to be up already when the night gets fully dark, and it's going to be the darkness of the night that stops it from being visible. So when the brightness of the sunrise starts beginning at astral twilight, the Milky Way fades away. Then September through November we have what is a setting Milky Way on the horizon, a very vertical Milky Way setting on the horizon, and it's going to get blocked. And that's what ends it for that time. And then December, there's no Milky Way whatsoever. So you need to know this about your Milky Way. What month is it? For instance, recently, I was looking at a January Milky Way. I wanted to do a time lapse showing, hey, here's the two nights before you know, when you look at photo pills, you, photo pills, you notice that actually there's a distinct day that it says, okay, the Milky Way core is visible. It's going to be visible, but what's it talking about? The core is huge. How is it just not visible? Is it when the very top, imagine a basketball. Is the basketball just barely going over the horizon and you see the top of it, now it's visible? Well, no. In photo pills, there's a center of the basketball where there's a star, which is actually in black hole, closest to the black hole of the Milky Way. So that star closer to the black hole, the the center of the Milky Way, the Sagittarius asterisk, Sagittarius A asterisk, that is the center of the Milky Way galaxy. And when that arises above the horizon, now the apparent horizon, it doesn't account for the fact that you have hills, mountains, buildings. There's another part of photo pills that will account for those. But what's happening is once that point has hit the horizon, bing, it's visible. And so on the first day of January, like say January 19th, it said for my area, it became visible for the first time in the year. But realistically, the 18th, the 17th, even the 16th, you saw a good chunk of the core, especially if you went somewhere like Island in the Sky and were up high looking across the horizon. There was nothing blocking your view except for the LaSalle Mountains way off in the distance. And so I know that I could capture a Milky Way time-lapse there and show how here's the night when Photopills said it wasn't there, and here's a night when the, Mil- when the Milky Way is shown on Photopills as having been visible. Look at the differences. <laughs> They're so barely different. And so I really wanted to have that time-lapse video, that YouTube video that teaches that and says, you know what, Photopills is absolutely accurate with that one section of the Milky Way core. But know that there's so much more depending on how flat your terrain is. 
And so I wanted to kind of teach that, and I was getting excited to go. And I know the moon in the Milky Way. I know it like back of my hand. I, I, I really have studied it a lot in the last four years, like intensely. So you would think that maybe I wouldn't mess up. You would think that I wouldn't think something about, oh, yeah, this will work perfect. I can go then. Oh, that, that weather looks good. Let's do it. <sighs> so here I was planning my trip, charging the batteries, putting things into my bin, getting ready to drive, thinking, okay, I'm going to drive all night. I'm going to be down there at Island in the Sky, record a time lapse. I'll start my time lapse, get the tripod set up, and I'll go to bed. I'll sleep while the time lapse runs. That'll be easy. Well, as I was looking at my planning, thinking, okay, will this be worth the drive through some snowy mountain passes? I have at least one when I drive from northern Utah through the canyon down into Moab area. And when I was doing this last check, after hours of having decided of already going, I realized that that blue line on photopills is the moon, right? Oh, I didn't check the moon. Okay, when is the moon up? When is the moon up versus when my Milky Way core is up? Turns out the moon was going to rise just before the time lapse needed to be starting for showing the Milky Way come over the horizon, and then it would go up the rest of the morning. So I was like, oh, gosh, dang it. I did not account for the moon. <sighs> weather was good. It was January, and weather looked good. Clear skies, definitely clear skies out in Canyonlands. And yet, even though the Milky Way would be visible and I can capture it the day it was showing on photopills that it would be visible, I had to wait another five, six days for the moon to get out of my way. It was not going to be a worthwhile time lapse when the moon is rising at the same time. And when the moon is rising at the same time of the east eastern Milky Way at this time of year, that moon and Milky Way is on top of each other. It's not like the moon was going to be on the opposite end of the sky, just about to set but taking too long to set. It was going to be rising with my Milky Way core. And so it was going to be completely in the way. So you must know your moon and Milky Way. You've got to figure out, figured out, okay, new moon. About two weeks before new moon, I can still see it. And two weeks after the new moon, I can still see it. So just depending on the exact day, there's going to be a window of opportunity so I can capture it. So you know the Milky Way. All right, well, the new moon in March is the 24th. And so I know that all the way up until the 17th, I can see it really easily. After to the 31st, easily. And then, you know, up until the 10th, two weeks before, there's going to be an hour, a 15-minute, a 45-minute gap, something. And so you can kind of trust that and know the Milky Way, and then know, okay, spring, it's over there in the east. Summer, it's in the south. Fall, it's in the southwest, heading towards the west. So now you know where the Milky Way is. You know that it's going to be visible during the times of these before the moon. Well, just make sure that you know the hours. Use photopills. Use planet. Use anything that you like to make sure you know when does the moon rise and set, and when's it going to be in my way. Because it can be up for only half the night. But the only half of the night that it's up is the exact half of the night that the Milky Way is visible. So you just got to double check that. Double check that. Double, double, triple check that. Number two. And this one will not be as long of a lesson as the first one. You have to find a dark sky location. You need to understand the location that you want to go is going to allow you to see the Milky Way. 
There's this mountain just north of me. If you go up past Salt Lake and you're almost heading towards Ogden, there's this pass that you could drive. I forget it off the top of my head, but on this mountain, I can drive all the way up to the top. It was one of the few areas where it had a tall, tall, tall peak that you can drive all the way up. One, I did not figure out that it, even though in July, it was going to be very cold. Oh my gads, it was cold. It was June or July sometime, and it was much colder than I expected. So boy, we get up top there, windy, freezing. Oh wow. Of course, I'm on top of this mountain that's at least 8,000 feet in the air. And so, oh my gads, okay. But why was that going to be a great dark sky location? It was going to be above all the light. I was going to be looking out over the distant blackness. Uh, This is going to be great. Unfortunately, at this time in 2016, didn't account for at that time of night when the Milky Way becomes visible, how much from the east to the south was this Milky Way going to move? And not knowing the location well enough, I wasn't sure how much that was going to put the Salt Lake light pollution off to my right or if it was going to be directly south of me. Turned out, not only was the Salt Lake light pollution directly south of me, but it was a little bit west east too, so it was directly south and left. So going into the part of the Milky Way easily could not make out much of anything because that light pollution was so big, so vast, that it poured up against the mountain range. And unfortunately, this mountain, it ended up coming in a little bit towards the center of Utah. And so it left the mountain range of Salt Lake area more eastern than the way I was standing. If I had been more western, or if I had been eastern of Salt Lake, then I could have put that light pollution behind me and not even worried about it. So you have to know your dark sky location. Use Dark Sight Finder. Use lightpollutionmap.info. Use something that you can check your dark sky and not only find that island of dark sky, you can go in the center of it, but you can also gather something right on the edge of it so long as if you're on the edge and you're looking away from the light pollution and into the dark abyss. If between you and the Milky Way core has a sea of darkness, you will be able to see the Milky Way. It doesn't matter how much light pollution is right on top of you or behind you, so long as the gap between you and the Milky Way core has darkness, you'll be okay. So make sure you find that dark sky location. So number one, know your moon and Milky Way. Two, find a dark sky location. Use your maps. Decide on a location that's going to be good to go to that has dark skies. I can't stress this enough. You don't go to a dark sky site. Your Milky Way will seem like, oh, I got to do something to fix it in post. Don't, don't do that. Don't make yourself have to go to some crazy crunching to try and bring out the Milky Way from it. Just go to a darker sky site. Drive the six to eight hours, depending on wherever you live, to get to that dark sky. Three, number three, Will there be clouds? Okay, so you know the Milky Way's in the right position. You know the moon will be out of your way, and it's going to not block anything. And the location you've chosen is going to be a dark sky site. So now you have a location in mind. You can check the weather. And you're going to keep up on that weather right until you leave. Use, use clear dark sky. Use clear outside Both of those, cleardarksky.com, clearoutside.com, those will help you verify how are the clouds going to go. 
You've heard this tell, you heard me tell a story before in Notch Peak where I had the information that, yeah, it's cloudy today, but after 11 until the morning, it's going to be clear. And checking the Notch Peak area that I was going to, there was a big optimism, that whole map showing clear skies after 11. <sighs> but the drive down there, cloudy, rainy. <sighs> what were we doing driving down to Notch Peak when it's just, cloudy everywhere. I can see the light pollution of cities bouncing off the clouds. They're that thick, that low. Complete failure. It's going to be a complete skunking once we get there. But it said at 11 p.m. it's going to get clear. Well, we kept driving. And this location was a location completely out of the way where it wasn't paved roads to get there. We were driving such dirt roads that we had sheep looking at us wondering, what the heck you're doing out here? No one drives out here. We're driving on a road that we could navigate through. We noticed the dirt road. Okay, this is working. This is working. We'll go this way. And we, we wanted to get to a point that we found on Google Earth that had an old abandoned house next to a mine. An old miner, maybe the family, maybe just the miner, was living in this house and it was still standing. On Google Earth, you could see a panoramio image and see, wow, there's a lot of it still standing. And I bet we could put a light on the inside of that and get it glowing. That would be really cool with the Milky Way. This was in April Milky Way. And so we were going to be looking towards the east, but the facade of this was on the west. And so we thought, well, but if... What if we got a panorama where the Milky Way was over here on the left of it, but we had the panorama showing the cool building and then panned to the left and showed more Milky Way. So we, we had optimism for it. <sighs> clouds, clouds, leaning right up to it, passing sheep, passing places that you think might give us a flat tire. Is this worth it? What are we doing on the scary road with clouds? It says... It gets clear at 11. Maybe maybe it will. As we pulled out, we arrived at the abandoned building, the small little house, and we're seeing that this is a cool spot. This could be great. But the clouds, and as we're looking up, all of a sudden, Orion, the constellation Orion starts popping through there. And shooting Orion through cloud cover, little thin cloud cover, makes it glow like crazy. Beetlejuice, Rigel, those orange, yellow, orangish yellow and blue stars, they just vibrantly pop off the sky with that thin cloud layer. And it did. It's, it went from being full clouds to thin to, oh my gads, I can look right above me and there's nothing, no nothing but stars. It was amazing. So you can trust the apps, cleardarksky.com and clearoutside.com. I recommend using them in tandem so that you can verify them off each other and just know for sure that it's worth it. You still will experience where it says it's going to be great and you drive a listener adventure, a group of people all the way out two hours to the knolls and you get there, and literally the first 15 minutes we were there, it was great skies. And as our tripods were fin finishing their last adjustment, <laughs> a thin layer of clouds formed. Very thin, very low, very fast, and they just filled the sky. Oh, my gosh. And you know what? Clear dark sky said it would be clear, but, you know, those clouds that showed up, it wasn't a cloud it wasn't clouds coming in. It wasn't a big storm system. It was still a clear night. It just moisture combined with temperature formed some new clouds right locally above us. And those that thin layer was just enough to skunk us. 
So I can trust Clear Dark Sky almost 75, 80% of the time and then experience some skunking. And so just verify as much as you possibly can before you go. So now we're done with the things that are completely unrelated to your camera and your gear. You must know the moon, the Milky Way. You must find a dark sky location. You must know if at that location there's going to be clouds or not to make it worth the trip. So now you know it's worth the trip. What are you going to take and how do you know your gear before you go? Don't figure these things out once you're on location. Don't do this in the dark. Figure these things out at home before you go. Know your gear number one. Camera body and lens. Now, I'm just saying everything, right? Camera body and lens, no. Trust me, we break it down to things that have broken people's mood and their resolve in workshops if they don't know these things before they got out there. So first off, your camera body. What do you got to know about your camera body? Double check it. Make sure your camera body has live view. Live view is incredibly helpful, incredibly critical to get a good focus on the stars. And if your shot is not in focus, you will be bad. You will be frustrated and you will feel like it was a waste of time. So you make sure your camera body has even the feature of going into a live view of sorts that you feel comfortable that you can use to capture the Milky Way. Go, can't go over 1600 ISO was a camera body we ran into. What were you telling me your camera can't go over 1600 ISO? Oh yeah, it's this older one. Oh wow, yeah, that thing is much older than I expected. This can't even go over 1600 ISO. It's going to be really hard to expose properly for the Milky Way, but we can try and fix that in post and crunch things and make it look weird. And guess what? It looked really weird and it was not cool. We, we tried so hard at the, at the uh, Creative Photography Retreat in Las Vegas, and we just couldn't get his camera to cooperate. It, we, we did our best on, the, on location, but when you look at the images later, dang it. Well, what about the lens? Did you look up and see, what, what is the lens everyone's using for Milky Way Photography? Oh, the Rokinon, huh? I'm going to get that. Well, were you careful to make sure that that lens fit your camera body? Were you sitting there with a Canon EF mount and you got a Sony or a Nikon version of the Rokinon lens accidentally? And is that lens fast? So you need to know your gear, whether your camera body can do some critical things, fit your lens, and whether your lens is fast. Fast meaning it has an f2.8 f-stop or better. And better is going to a smaller number. So f2.8, f2, f1.8, 1.4, f0.95. I mean, you can get such a good image with a faster lens. You have two lenses, both equally expensive, equally great glass. But if one is an f1.4 and the other is an f2.8, the f1.4 will outperform that one easy just because of the light bucket size of the lens. So know those things, get them, know them. But now that you verify that your camera does have live view, that your camera can fit your lens, well, what do you got to make sure you do? You need to make sure, number five, know your gear. Where is live view? How do I activate it? What button needs to be pressed? What button needs to be toggled off to allow it if in some cases you have some weird thing that's fighting with it? Know your camera. Know where the heck live view is. If you don't know it, find it. And once you do find it, practice getting to it in the dark. Go to your bathroom. Grab your camera. 
turn it on, and then start fumbling around with the buttons in the dark and see how well you handle it. No, 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 no. I, I am not saying put your headlamp on and see how good it goes in the dark. How many of you are going to go out and do milky photography completely alone? How many of you are going to go to locations that are popular? Many of you are going to have people next to you whether you brought them or not. And so when you get there and you find out that you can't have your headlamp on white light or, heaven forbid, red light, which, yes, I have learned to hate red light because I can fix an image that has some white light in it, in it. But when it has red light in it, so much more work has to go in to bring back the natural colors of what was there. But if you have a little white light burst on your image, you can darken that. It still looks natural. You have a red light burst going all over the place. Ugh. Thank you very much, red light guy. So you will not be able to use your headlamp in many situations. So you got to know how to get to live view, and you got to know how to do it in the dark. In fact, everything I'm about to tell you, you need to know how to do in the dark. So get these tips, remember them, learn your camera, and then learn your camera in the dark. So live view, know how to get there. Man, <laughs> I can't tell you. The few times, not many, because I try my best to prepare people, but the few times that people have come to workshops that have had a focus fail, it's because they couldn't get to live view. Whether their camera was capable of it or not, it was killing them that they could not go to a live view to look at the star. And in that live view, here's the thing that you must think of. In live view, do I have a clear, easy view of a bright star or a planet? For instance, can you zoom? Do you know where the zoom is on your live view? Where you're in live and now you're zooming an extra amount. On my Canon 6D and 5D Mark IV, I can go into live view and then use a zoom on the magnifying glass button and zoom into times 2, times 5, times 10. And maybe it's times 3, times 5, times 10. But you can get to times 10 digital zoom, which is great. Why? Because that planet, that's this dot on my big old screen, becomes a dot that fills, you know, one-sixth of my screen instead of one-tenth or one-twentieth of my screen. It can be so frustrating if you can't get that object, that planet, that star as big as possible in the back of your screen so that when you turn your focus manually that you can tell when it is in focus. And in focus, if you don't know already, means that you've got the ball of white smallest. The smallest it can be. The tightest little ball it can be. If it's blurry, it's bigger. If it's tight and on focus, it's smaller. Now that orb doesn't ever go down to like, okay, I'm zooming in on the, a wording of the word tree, and now I can see the blur and the blobs become the letters T-R-E-E. -E. I know I'm in focus. Stars don't have that. Planets don't have that. You don't get a, okay, I went from blobs to distinct crisp letters. No, you have blobs that turn to a blob. Which blob was better? Was that blob better? Was this blob better? Which blob is the correct blob? That's what you're working with. So you better make it possible to make that blob as big as possible, as clear as possible for you whether your vision is perfect and you're 10 years old, 20 years old, or if your vision is in your 80s and it's difficult to see, 
do whatever it takes to make it more easy to dis distinguish the blob. So viewfinder only, dang, that's hard. I've had people try and do that, and I'm like, why? Why? Just do the live view, get a Carson Lumi loop, and zoom in. You zoom in digitally, put a Carson Lumi loop on the end as well, and now you're seeing that blob as this giant thing that's the size of your pupil. You could identify that blob going bigger and smaller very easily as you're twisting the lens focus. And so now you get that focus down and it's gone as small as it can go and you can recognize it. And then you turn it some more and it goes a little bit bigger. Oh, okay, yeah, go, go, go back. Turn it back a little bit. Now it goes back to that tight one. And okay, I see that it's as tight as it possibly can be. Great. And why did why was I able to do that? Because I knew my gear before I got out there. I knew how to get live view on. And I knew how to zoom digitally so I can get as big as possible. And maybe even brought a loop with me, like the Carson Lumi Loop, the $5 easy-to-buy Carson Lumi Loop, to help me make sure that I have it. And as a bonus note, try to remove distracting elements off your live view. If you happen to have zebras that are showing you when you're over-highlighted, it might have a blinky that's happened, some blinks that are happening on all your white spots and saying, hey, I'm in focus, or hey, this is over -sent. this is going to be too bright and perhaps overexposed. If you have those kind of elements on the LCD screen going, that's going to be annoying, obnoxious, and difficult to look past it. So know how to turn those off. And if you have grids for your composition, don't worry about your composition grids because those are much easier used in live view or through your viewfinder and you can see everything in a terrain. In this situation, you're not seeing your terrain. You're taking a picture, then you see your terrain, then you're adjusting blindly. It doesn't have the same easiness of just looking through your camera, seeing the grid and going, there's the third, and there's my cool cactus that I want. I'm going to move that cactus until I see it cross over that grid, and now it's on the third, boom, my composition's there. That cactus is there only when you capture the image and you see it. Before that, you couldn't see it on your back of your screen. So you're going to do a lot more of taking a picture, uh, a little more to the left. Take a picture, uh, more to the left. A little picture, more to the left. Oh, I like that. That's good. But maybe a little bit up. Take a picture, move it up. Take a picture, move it up. Boom. I got my composition. Yes. All of that is done so heinously one by one by one that the grid is not going to be much help. And during the time that you're trying to get focus, if that grid is on, is that light of the line in the in your face on the LCD screen as you're all zoomed in, you got a Carson Lumi Loop tight on there, and you've got lights coming from all different directions, get rid of those distractions. Clear it up so that the only brightness, the only white dot of pixel that you see on your screen are, is the star or planet that you're using to focus on. You'll have a much easier time. Know your gear number three. Oh, tip number six. Know your gear number three, white balance. What is your white balance? Well, that is something that my main advice for people is it can be anything you want it to be. Just be consistent. Why? Because if you have the consistent white balance and you come into a new situation and you look at an image that's been taken with that same white balance that you've really gotten used to, you're going to see when it's more blue, more green. Oh, wow. There's some serious green um, air glow tonight. Awesome. I can see that. If you change your white balance every time, it won't hurt you as long as you shoot in raw, but it's just going to be easier to pick one and stick with it. When I was starting, I chose 4,000. 
As I was shooting at 4,000, I was pretty happy with that. And I met Royce Bear. And Royce Bear, we were out at the um, area near Mir Lake up in Uintas. And he was like, I always shoot at 3,800. I just like the blue in there and it looks really nice on my camera. I thought, he's right. I just tried it. I like it. It's really close to the 4,000 that I was shooting or 4,200 that I was shooting. And I was like, let's do it. I'm going to go 3,800 because I like Royce Bear and I'm going to follow his advice. And why not? I could choose anything anyway. So I went 3,800, and I've been going 3,800 ever since. So through the remainder of 2017, all the way to now, I've been shooting at 3,800 for my base white balance. Guess what my ending white balance ends up at? My post-processing will always, always get into the 4,000s and go up from 4,100 to 4,800. It just depends on the image and my mood at the time of post-processing. If I was Roger Clark, I'd tell you 5,000. Go somewhere up there, and then in your post-processing, you're going to fix the white balance and not have a blue Milky Way. But you know what? I'm not Roger Clark, and you're not making an image of the Milky Way that's getting used in science or going to you know, educate children and say, this is exactly precisely the color of the Milky Way. It's your fun image. It's your fun art. I've been using 3800 every dang time, and I have images that are more green-blue, images that are kind of purple, magenta, like my shot over Island in the Sky that's got a little more magenta in it. And yet the post-processing brought it up to like 42, 43. It's not all that magenta or warm, and yet it stayed down in the blue colors. Now, magenta and purple is a cold color, but still, the point is is that my post-processing changes my white balance every time, but you do need to decide on what yours is going to be. And before you go out, choose one. Pick one that you like, and I recommend anywhere from 3,800 to 4,500. Go for it. Royce Bear shoots lately 4,500, he says. He likes to shoot up higher now and warmer, and why not? It's great. I just say be consistent with whatever you choose so that you get used to it. You know what to expect from your shot. So the next time you go to a new location and you take your settings and you got the exact same white balance and you go and you take a shot and you go, hmm, the thing wrong with my image is probably my shutter or my ISO, not my white balance. You don't want to be fiddling with your white balance every time. Who cares? Just go to your base and use it. Tip number seven, know your gear shutter. Know your gear shutter. Now, you need to know exactly where it is in your camera because frustration can really kill the fun of being out there. Where's your shutter? How do you control your shutter real quickly on your camera? Do you have to go into the Q menu? Do you like to go on the back of the screen and do the touch menu? What do you prefer to use for your shutter? Figure it out on your camera. Get to know it in the daylight and go, yeah, I am just going to roll this slider. Or I'm going to twist this guy. Okay, so my shutter is controlled by the wheel on top of the right side of my camera body. And so I know to change that if I want to change the shutter. Otherwise, I hit the ISO button and change my ISO there. So you must know where to find your shutter is at night. But the more important part, the more important thing that you're deciding before you go out is what is my shutter going to be? And if you're completely, completely new and you don't know where to start, let me give you three choices to choose from that you should start with. And then you're going to tweak based on your own experience. But here's three choices that you should consider. 20 seconds as the longest you ever go. 30 seconds, it can be interesting the way the colors pop and you get more color the longer the shutter is 
but almost every lens you use, in fact, I can guarantee every lens that you have, 30 seconds, whether it's wide, fisheye, or what, you're going to have star trailing at 30 seconds. And why have star trailing when you don't have to? Because you're going to think your camera is out of focus, but it was just star trailing issues. All your stars look big because they're trailed. They're just oblong now instead of round. So don't go to 30. You should consider 20 seconds depending on your camera body. Say you know your camera body is going to have a tougher time with higher ISO. Do 20 seconds. Go for it. You'll still have star trailing. Not as extreme as 30 seconds, but you're going to be able to get a good exposure. If you want to keep it tighter, but you still like the idea of a longer shutter, 13, 15 seconds. Either 13 or 15, make that your shutter, and you're going to pick it. Why do I say it this way? I'll tell you at the end. The end of this tip. Then, the other option if you go for a Rokinon lens, something with a big old wide open aperture, something that's f1.8 or greater, like my, like my Rokinon that's an f1.4, go to 8 seconds. 8 seconds. Now, if I look at the MPF rule for my camera body plus my camera sensor plus my lens plus my settings, guess what it tells me on the PhotoPills app that I need to be at in order to have zero star trailing? It's like 2.8 seconds or something crazy like that, or 4 seconds. Yikes. I, I'm not going to shoot that short. So I'm going to have some trailing, but I love 8 seconds on my Rokinon. It's plenty of time to get a good shot, and I don't have any trailing. I prefer to have as tight of stars as possible, and it's worth it, especially in those corners where the trailing will be a lot more obvious than it is towards the center of the lens. So I love keeping my images from the lens out still looking pretty good because it's only 8 seconds long. So right now you're going to choose 8 seconds, 13 slash 15, or 20. And the reason why you're choosing that first is because the next tip is going to involve something that you're going to adjust your exposure for. And you're not touching your shutter. You're not going to touch your shutter unless absolutely necessary because you've decided on your shutter. Based on your personal preference for star trailing, you've chosen your shutter. All you're going to do from that point on is adjust the ISO. So tip number, tip number seven, the shutter. Pick your shutter based on how much star trailing you can deal with. Now what? Your camera's in focus. Your camera's usable. It's sitting there ready to take a picture of the Milky Way. How do you possibly get it good and make that Milky Way shine? Tip number eight. Know your histogram. Where the heck is the histogram on your image? Now, I am not talking about the live view histogram because that ain't going to work. Maybe in the future it'll change, but it's not going to give you a real example of what your histogram is going to be. I think Sony users will tell me that theirs does, and if that's true, great, awesome. But the thing that is best, the absolute potentially best way of doing this is to take a picture. Shoot your camera at the core, not the other side of the Milky Way, but at the core, and take a shot using the shutter that you've decided on. So now your shutter is firing. Your camera's exposing for it as best as it can. Oh, it's done. You look at it, and as you're looking at that image in re image review, you're going to turn on the histogram. Where on your camera is your info button that turns on your histogram? There it is. I hit that button. 
yeah, cool. There goes the image is now half of the screen, and I'm seeing information for my shot, and there's a histogram. Oh, wait, it shows art red, green, and blue. It also shows now only white. Which one do I want? If you see the histogram and you can change it, don't use the red, green, blue one. That's more distracting. Just get the luminosity histogram, the one that's just plain white and black and shows you the luminosity histogram. And looking at that histogram, we'll be teaching you that at a later date. But there is a perfect histogram that is a good, proper, exposed Milky Way. And more often than not, you suckers are underexposed. You're getting your shots way underexposed and you're trying to change it in post. And that's the thing that you're hating. And maybe you blame your post-processing. Maybe you blame the light pollution. But it's probably your underexposed Milky Way that's causing you the most trouble. Well, I don't like to go up so high because of the noise. Oh, please. Tell me that after you have taken 16 images with the proper exposure and then make your educated decision. Don't make your decision now based off of worries about noise. Look at your histogram. Is your histogram bunched up on the left? Do you have any separation between the high peak of black and then the gap between the black of the foreground to the grays, the pinks, the purples, the lights, the, the white and yellow, all those different colors that come out in the space of the sky. What does that look like? You need to get a peak with the black foreground. You need to have a valley that goes down and separates itself from the hump of the middle tones, the mid-tones that are all part of the Milky Way and the the light from the night sky all of that takes up the middle so you should have a hump um think of it as like a really lazily drawn h has a peak that goes up and you come back down and then you kind of lazily separate it and then draw your hump of the h and so that look is going to be on the tip sheet if you go to the tip sheet download you'll see the look of the histogram that you want where now your data is all coming as close to the middle as possible, but you're not going beyond it too much. Because if you go beyond it too much, exposed to the right method, you will lead to overexposing elements of your Milky Way. So here's the great begin, the great start. Here's where you're going to start with all your images and then work from there with experience. So your first image, you decided on 13 seconds. Now your histogram is underexposed. What do you do? I'm going to try 6,000 ISO. Take a picture. Check your histogram. Hmm, it's moved closer, but it's definitely not touching the middle. I could see that I don't have as much separation from the black peak and my hump, and so let's get some more separation there. I'm going to go up to 8,000 ISO. Kablamo. If you have a Rokinon lens and a Canon 60 or a Canon 5D Mark IV, you will see a great histogram at 8 seconds and an ISO of 8,000. And so you might find that around 8,000 ISO, you've got your exposure too. But I never go past 3,200 ISO. I got so much noise. I'm telling you, try it 16 times or more before you complain to me on how it's looking. Because you will find, like I have found, that the noise I got in my image at an underexposed Milky Way was usually and typically introduced by my post-processing that it took me to get the Milky Way to pop on the screen. All that noise starts showing up because of all the crunching I'm doing in post-processing to make things pop. Or I could properly expose my Milky Way, make the dang thing pop now, and then just tweak some things back and up to make it look great and not worry about the noise because guess what? 
it went away. The noise isn't there. You will have and you will find less noise in your image at a properly exposed Milky Way than you thought. Now, if there's still things that you're seeing, shoot a stack. Get a stack going and then use Equator, use Star Landscape Stacker and make it silky smooth all you want. I don't do it personally that much. I like seeing a little bit of grain, but not everyone likes that. Most people don't. And I'm sure that it's something that you personally will choose one way or another and there's no wrong way to do it. The only wrong way to do it is to underexpose your Milky Way. So make sure you have that histogram. You need to know how to see it on the back of your camera so that when you're there on location and you're capturing your image, you know, boom, histogram's up. I'm checking it. Oh, I'm going to tweak my ISO. So now tip number nine, ISO. I just gave all those tips about the ISO. Basically, I explained the entire histogram explaining the ISO. So just know that the ISO, where is it? Where's the button that controls my ISO? Do I need to go into the menu manually to find my ISO controls? I've seen some cameras where at least the user and owner of that camera found it easier to go into their menus. I personally have a Canon, so I click the ISO button on the top, and I notice that of all my buttons up here, these round little hockey pucks, these little black hockey pucks, there's one that has a dot in the center. All of them are smooth except for the ISO button where there's a dot. So like a blind man looking for braille, I'm going to feel a dot that's different on the one button. And so in the dark, I know, oh, there's my ISO button. I hit it, boom, change it, 6,000. Boom, hit it, 8,000. How about 10,000? How about 12,800? I can change my ISO without even thinking because I know where that button is and I can find it in the dark thanks to the dot the braille marking on the button. Thank you, Canon, you beautiful beast. Ah. Now, if you have a Sony or a Nikon, you have an awesome camera too, so don't worry. If you have a Pentax, get out. No, if you have any camera, you have a great camera. Just make sure you know your camera. What does your camera need you to do? Figure it out. Tip number 10. The last tip before I go to a bonus tip. Know your gear. Know your gear tip number seven, which is tip number 10. That's confusing. Tip number 10 is raw and noise reduction. Once you've got all the knowledge of how to make sure you expose your picture well, before you even take your picture, the one that you're going to keep, you better know in your menu system, and you can do this right now. You don't have to do this the day before you leave. Go in there, turn these on, because these are settings you'll have in landscape photography and anywhere else. And I don't know why you would use these otherwise. Raw. Know how to get your camera to capture and develop in the raw setting. You can do a raw plus JPEG or just a raw. Make sure you're capturing at raw. If you capture at raw, you can change your white balance. You can change your white balance after the fact. I told you at the beginning of this that in tip number 10, for instance, you might think is not all that important, but if you don't do, you're missing out on a big thing. Okay, if you just do JPEG, it can make it easier for you in post because it processes the dynamics and brings the contrast back in for you. But then what you can do to the image afterwards is very minimal. You go in raw. Yeah, you have a slight. I mean, watch my video. You'll see a slight amount of work to bring it out again. But it's worth it because you can change everything from white balance to lens profile corrections, all those things that are going to keep your image from having any compression starting off completely from raw, a noiseless, lossless, zero compressed image that you can work from and then save it out as a compressed image JPEG or something that you want to put on Facebook or Instagram or on your phone. So shoot in raw. 
and know where that setting is in there. And on top of this, when you're in the settings already, go in and check your noise reduction, wherever you call it on your camera. In Canon, we call it high ISO noise reduction and long shutter noise reduction. So you're going to want to turn those off. You don't want that noise reduction happening in camera. You can do that noise reduction on your own outside. Just don't let the camera change your image. Don't let Nikon, Sony, or Canon decide for you how to handle that. In some cases, it's better. I know Fujifilm, when they set some of their presets, they love it how the camera does that for them, and it looks better. And you know what? I respect that. If that's how your camera's going, use it. But my basic advice is to know where that is, turn those off, no high ISO noise reduction, no long shutter and long exposure noise reduction, just turn those off. Why? When you're shooting a shot, like in Canon on the long exposure noise reduction, what it basically does is you take an image and then it shoots a second image of black equally as long. So if it was an eight second shutter, your eight second image is going to finish, then your camera is going to wait for eight seconds capturing a black image and then allow you back into the camera. If you're doing a panorama and you want to do it quickly, you got eight seconds in between each image and that really delays you and that's an annoying process that's not going to really benefit you. You're going to be great without it. So turn off the high image, high ISO noise reduction and the long exposure noise reduction. You'll be much, much better off. So. Those are the 10 tips. Here's the bonus tips. Now, these are going to be just a smattering of options that you should think about. But just know these things about your camera. One, know your drive mode. Your drive mode is on your camera where you can set up whether it's going to be a single image, a multiple image, a high, fast, moving high. Um, it's called high and low, which is a difference in how fast the shutter will take multiple images. And you can change it also to a two-second or a 10-second timer. Um, your camera might have more settings than that. But basically, I always have mine in a two-second timer so that I can hit that and then just step back from my tripod. I, I don't actually step back because that could cause more vibration and movement. I just I hit that button, then I move my arms away, and then I settle. <sighs> I don't touch my tripod. I don't touch the the dangling neck um, strap. If you happen to have a neck strap on your camera still, I don't touch anything. I let those two seconds go before it captures the image. And that way the camera vibration and all that will be absolutely to a minimal minimum or nothing. And now my shot, even if it was in focus, it doesn't have any vibration causing it to look out of focus. So use that two second timer, know where it is. If you happen to have a shutter release that you're gonna bring, Figure out how to use that shutter release before you get there. Where do you plug it in? Does it work with your L-bracket? Does your L-bracket block you from using your shutter release? If you use an intervalometer as a shutter release, know your intervalometer. Know how to use that intervalometer before you get on location. What are the settings to change it for a time lapse and how are you going to use it? Make sure you know this before you get out there. Does your camera fit on an L-bracket? And then that L-bracket go in your ball head. Does your ball head have an easy connection? Can you put your camera on the ball head without having any light so that when you're next to four or five different people or 10 or 12, you don't have to turn your light on just because you decided to change your lens. Oh, I'm gonna change my lens. Let me take my camera off my tripod. Boom, get my lens on, boom, click. Oh, where is that control to put this back in the tripod? Yeah, know your ball head, know how to get your camera on there completely in the dark, learn it. And if you don't have an L bracket, I completely recommend it because you will do panoramas and you will rotate to landscape, to orientation, or to panorama, uh, I'm sorry, portrait orientation. So you will be switching back and forth between portrait, landscape, portrait, landscape. Be 
ready to do that by having an L bracket that fits your camera, fits your camera body and looks awesome. And your tripod, make sure you know your tripod has enough heft to carry your camera so it can last a full 8, 12, 15, 20 second shutter. Don't let it vibrate and move because of a slight breeze. Get a serious tripod with serious stability, okay? This is a Milky Way shot that you don't want to miss. <sighs> All right. Tip episode number one. Milky Way Photographers Guild, thank you so much for joining me in the guild and being ready to learn Milky Way photography. Whether you're with me just this month, for the next three months, six months, or all year long, thanks so much for joining me here. And hope you enjoy this information. Thank you so much. See you next week on a Milky Way Wednesday. <laughs>